Hello, and welcome to the Music Teacher Coffee Talk podcast. I'm Tanya. And I'm Carrie. We are both elementary music teachers who love to talk shop, preferably over a steaming cup of coffee or perhaps an iced coffee. Yeah. This is episode number 41. Today we're kicking off our summer book club and discussing the first four chapters from Teaching for Musical Understanding by Jackie Wiggins. So grab your beverage of choice and let's get started. So now it's time for our highs and lows. Not of our school week. Not of our school week. Because it's of our, summer. You know, just regular old being alive week. Being alive week and enjoying summer. Yes. So, so Tanya, what you got? Well, we've been out of school for, what, two weeks? Something that like that. It? Gosh, it feels longer. It does. But that's good. So my family and I, we took a little road trip yeah. to California. And... Um, we spent a few days in L.A. with some family, and we went to Catalina Island, and then we went to the Sequoia National Park. And anyway, so um, I would, I'm going to say my high, which is literally a high, oh. but kind of a low. Um, <laughs> so in Cat- Catalina Island, they have parasailing. Oh, yeah. And so um, my whole family and also uh, my husband's Uncle Scott, and his wife, Karen, we ah, all went parasailing. So fun. Yeah. Except I'm afraid of heights. Yeah. And I thought my afraid of heights business, I don't know. I've not used, I, it's gotten, it's something that hasn't been around until I have gotten older. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I don't know why I'm just going on the auspice that like, if I keep doing the thing I'm afraid of, it'll get better. Right. It doesn't get better. No. Or it's not getting better. No. Well, no. is that something that you need to get better? Well, I, I mean, you, you went parasailing, so it couldn't have been, like, completely detrimental. To well, I mean, I didn't scream and cry and, like, say, let me down, let me down. Right. I mean, <laughs> that I, would didn't, be a bit I didn't cause a scene or anything. Yeah. But, like, I feel like I didn't enjoy it as much as I should have. Uh-huh. Because the whole time I was just dealing with this, like, wave of panic. And then I would just take some breaths and close my eyes and let it pass. And then I'd open my eyes and I'd be like, what the hell? We're still here. <laughs> and Was that the height or the water or the combination of the two? It's not the water. It's the height. Just the height. Just the height. Just yeah. looking around. And, I mean, you know, you're tethered to this right big old cord. Yeah. But 800 feet up. So it was just literally, literal, literally a high. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So 800 feet up. Um, and it's like, you know. Like, Aunt Karen was like, isn't this so peaceful? I'm like, well, yeah, but I'm done now. Right. Um. <laughs> so the one time I went parasailing, I think I was, it was I was in college because we did a cruise with, like, my big extended family. It was like a family reunion cruise. And I went parasailing, but it was like a single person thing. So I was oh, up there by myself. So you don't even want to talk to. Yeah, which was almost creepier. And then, like, you could hear, like, every little creak uh-huh. of, like, the... Yeah. the and sometimes, you like, you get a little, like, a thing. little jolt because of the wind or yeah, something. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that was kind of like, so I was just talking to myself the whole time. Oh, yeah, I would totally do that. Or singing, because mm-hmm. I was kind of freaking out about the fact that I was by myself. And it was very peaceful and quiet, but I didn't like that it was peaceful and quiet. Right. Well, and so there was three of us, because, yeah. you know, my nine-year-old daughter is right next to me. And was she scared? Nope. <laughs> Did that Nobody make you feel better scared. or worse? Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, 
well, I don't want her to be scared. Right. But, like, everybody loved it. Nobody was scared. Nobody had any kind of, like, anxious feelings, except for me. Okay. But, um, I don't know. I I just, I want to enjoy these things. Right. awesome and you should enjoy and i just feel like i didn't get all the enjoyment out of it i should have i thought this was a high it was it was high <laughs> oh you said it we was a high super that's maybe high but no it was good I, but you know don't you wish that knowing about a phobia would just make it go away yeah I hear or that. that you could rationalize it away yeah. because like we were up there and karen was like you know we've got life vests if we if even if we were to fall we'd land in the water it's not it's not about like it's not rational. Right. It's not like I can go, oh, well, everything, you know, even the worst case scenario, everything would be okay. It's not about that. I, I think just... it's a normal human reaction, though. Is it? I mean, well, yeah. I mean, think about, like, what we're wired to do. Like, we're wired to survive, right? And mm-hmm. so, like, you're doing something that your body's <laughs> like, wait a minute now. <laughs> this is not something I want to be doing. So I think it's normal. Like, people enjoy it for, like, the adrenaline piece, but also, like... The view and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. But I think the, the fear of whatever you're, like, the visceral fear is But normal. it wasn't like I was thinking, oh, my gosh, I'm going to plummet. I wasn't thinking, like, literal thoughts about dying. No, but I'm saying it's your body's reaction. But I just had, you know, waves of panic. Yeah. That would subside and then come back. Right. So this is the problem. I just wish that I could have the initial wave of panic and, like, breathe my way through it. And then everything's okay. Right. But it keeps coming back. But you're happy you did it. No, I'm happy. I, yeah, and I would do it again. Cool. Um, but anyway, so that was my high. Your literal high. My high low. Well, that's funny because that's kind of related to what I'm going to talk about. Tell us. So um, my family decided to get season passes to Elitch Gardens. Oh, did you like do the big accelerator thing? Our local place. What's the big accelerator thing? It's it's a height oh, thing. Oh, okay. Well, so no, let's okay. let's talk baby steps. So, like, first of all, like I've gone a couple times already because you know we're gonna make use of these season yeah. passes. Darn it! You're gonna so, take us too. Yeah. So we've taken yeah. So we've taken the kids a couple times, but of course we end up in Kitty Land area because even though my son is ten, he has a major fear of heights. So like oh. he doesn't want to do the roller coasters and even the Ferris wheel. Like he got a little freaked out on the Ferris wheel. Really? So we kind of do like the lower to the ground. Like they don't mind the spinny stuff, but I can't do the spinny stuff because Ugh, as an adult no. that really messes with me. So I just end up watching them ride a lot of rides, which is fine. But last night my husband and I had a date night and we went to Elitch's. And we said, well, since we're here on our own, we need to ride roller coasters. Yeah. Like, and my husband's really big into roller coasters. All right. And I'm kind of medium-ish about it. But then, like, it occurred to me, like, I haven't ridden a roller coaster, like, that goes upside down in years. I mean, probably not 15 years, It maybe? can be fun. It can, but I was really freaking out. But anyways, so, yes, I ended up riding all the roller coasters but no, I didn't do those like boomerangy things. I mean, first okay. of all, they cost extra money. Which did you do like the Tower of Doom? And I won't do the tower. No, I won't do like the drop, like the giant drop mm-hmm. kind of ride. No, I don't do those because it's I don't like the, I like the moving forward and I like the upside down and the loop de loops. <laughs> but just something that goes straight up and, and then drops down. Yeah. So, anyways, that was my high. Literal high was that yeah. I, I rode roller coasters. All right. And, I, and it kind of went through that same like fear thing where I was like. But the way I talked myself into it, 
was that I've done this before and I didn't die, so surely it must be fine. And I used to enjoy roller coasters, so I'll probably enjoy them again. Yeah. And overall, I did enjoy my, my time. All right. So, yeah, I mean, that, that high just kind of goes with the general high note of just enjoying summer with my family right yes. now. And, and you don't have to get to bed at certain times. We're going to a lot and going to the lake by our house and just... My goal for this summer was to be outside as much as possible. And All I right. feel like we're, we're achieving that so far. Nice. So I'm feeling good. And so this is our first installment of our Summer Book Club for 2019. And we're reading Teaching for Musical Understanding by Jackie Wiggins. And, the um, third edition. The third edition. And I know there's been some confusion about, about the editions. And I, yeah. I I apologize. I put the wrong link to the – I put the wrong edition in our show notes for last time. I have right. changed that. Um, so now it's correct. Right. And um, I'll be upfront about this part, too, is that I have ordered the third edition, and I don't have it yet, but I have the second edition. Yeah. So that is one thing that we can talk about. We might be doing a little comparison game as we go through. Yes. So if you have accidentally gotten or had previously owned the second or even the first edition, mm -hmm. there might be some differences. I mean, specific things like page numbers might yeah, be different. Yeah, I'm sure that, that's... Yeah. And there, I mean, there are definitely purposely some different information, and she talked a little bit about this in the foreword to the third edition that she's talking a lot about um, things she, she talked about how she geared the second edition and third edition more towards like graduate students mm -hmm. and um, doctoral students where the first edition she really wrote more specifically for undergrad students so she includes more academic language and citations in, in these older the newer editions, the newer editions. excuse me um, and then she also mentions and I don't know, you know, we'll see when we compare that, you know, she's trying to be um, more socially and culturally aware in this third edition. Yeah, so that's I, the that's part really that we might yeah. notice some differences in actual content. But, but I think that's going to happen later on in the book. Because yeah, I don't the think first it's happening four chapters, so Especially yet. chapters one and two, she seems to really be laying the groundwork yeah. about what constructivist teaching is all about right. and like clearing up some terminology and um wow okay first impressions because i was just going to dig in to some yeah. specifics but what are your first impressions carrie well just based on what we've read so far chapters one through four i feel like this is like you said this is like laying a lot of that groundwork and that background knowledge the terminology and just kind of what is constructivism in the classroom and how it relates to music classroom but she hasn't gotten a lot of into specifics and nitty-gritty and practical applications yet but I yes. think that's but in coming. chapters three and especially chapter four she does like highlight some specific scenarios she does and I love that she yes. gives some actual there like, were some really cute ones in chapter written four out that we'll scenarios get to. yeah quotations from students and teachers and it's so yeah it's not that I don't feel like what I'm reading is relating to what I'm doing but it's it's kind of academic and heady at the beginning it is. I got a little scared in the first chapter going oh my this is maybe more than my brain wants to do right now but <laughs> really once I got through the first chapter which was very interesting but yes. once I got to the second and third I started to feel like okay I can I can see now because she started as soon as she started relating things specifically to what it looks like in a music classroom right all of a sudden I went oh yeah that's now what we're doing. I really appreciated though um, the whole dealings with 
the difference between schema theory and metaphor theory. Yeah. Um, but let me back up a little bit because I, I want to, we're going to quote a bit. Oh, I'm sure. But something that I highlighted that is just like the big groundwork, especially for chapter one, is people learn by constructing their own understanding. And that's what a constructivist view of education is. Yes. And I don't know about you, but there are several times that I put, I wrote in the margins, um, Kodai, Kodai, yes. Kodai, yeah. because a lot of this is, um, is, goes very well in line with a Kodai philosophy. Absolutely. But I will also say, and maybe I should save this for, um, chapters three, especially, is that she mentioned a lot of things that also brings to mind the idea of learning targets. Yeah. And, uh, essential questions. Yep. So I was and success criteria. Yeah. So I was uh, like, wow, um, that's great. I, I hope she goes more into that also. Yes. In later chapters Agreed. and shows how it works in a music classroom. Because in all of the experiences that I've had, which is not a lot of formal experiences outside of my own district. So I will say I have not taken any kind of outside classes on, um, you know, learning targets success criteria, any right. of these things, but the th the brief trainings that I have had never deal with in a music classroom. Right. Right. So, I mean, and like, we're used to that. Right. But once again, it's like adapted to your own situation and then you get into that whole, you know, pickle about, okay, is it worth adapting in my situation? Exactly. Is it, am I doing it just to show an administrator or can I find some real like authenticity in right. this task? Yeah. I'll be very interested to hear how she talks about yes. that. But the way she framed it, um, I thought made a lot of sense. It did. But I'm, I'm going to go back. I'm getting ahead of myself or we're yeah. getting ahead. Um, so chapter one, and she's talking about learning and how we should understand schemas. And I thought that was really um, interesting when we, she talked about how we relate everything that we learn to past knowledge. Mm -hmm. And um, I could see, and I was going to ask you if there was anything in the first chapter, uh, when she's talking about schemas and how different people have different experiences and they're yeah. going to bring those into a room. Does she talk about that in a cultural context at all in chapter one? She does. And because she doesn't, it, it doesn't happen in the second edition. Yes, there is something very specific that I highlighted. Here we go. If, if you're looking at the third edition, um, it starts on page eight. She's talking about our prior life. I'm just going to read this quote. Our prior life experience and interpretation of that experience frames our view of the world and in many ways determines how we will choose to act and react in new experiences. This provides a basis for multiple perspective and that each of us understands the world a bit differently because we interpret new experience through the frame of our prior experience. And then she goes on to say that this is related to issues of diversity and multiculturalism. Ah, see, that's not happening here. Yeah, because people bring situations to prior experience that reflects the culture in which they live. So, right. yes, this was another one of those, like, ringing true to the Kodai philosophy when mm -hmm. we talk so much about making sure we are incorporating that mother tongue language, you know, musical language, whether that be American folk songs or if you teach in a more diverse, you know, school situation, bringing in music of the culture of the students in which you serve. Exactly. Yeah. And, and making sure that you are honoring their perspective from there. Yes. Well, so, so yeah. that's great because while I was reading this about the schema, 
I my my brain went there. I was yeah, like, well, where is that? What about, of course, you know, from different cultures, um, different home experiences, different neighborhood, and and we look through our lens that we are growing up in, and um, yeah, yeah. So I'm glad to know that that was in there. Um, yeah, that was definitely be for me teaching in. I, I teach in a very well diverse in that it's diverse from maybe a stereotypical, you know white American school, I have mm-hmm. a high Hispanic Latino population. Right. So that's And you very also much have economic is, diversity. Yeah. Oh, very much so. So yeah, whenever I read anything that where she was talking about having your different perspective of different people, that mm-hmm. was definitely reassuring to me that she's going through that lens, especially in this third edition. Yeah. And I'm, uh, as far as schemas go, I might embarrass myself here. I don't care. Anyway, I remember in my undergrad, uh, in an undergrad class many, many years ago, and uh, in a education class and talking about understandings and talking about um, oppression Mm -hmm. and marginalized people, I remember the professor saying something about, well, if you have a test question that says, what color are bananas? And then, you know, you have students that maybe don't circle yellow. Yeah. They say, well, when bananas come to my neighborhood, they're brown. Yeah. Or Or they're green. green. Or, you know, so... For me, that's something that I really really sticks out to me because yes. that was one of the very first times, you know, as a um, cis white middle class kid, that I went, oh, yeah, that that's true. Totally. And she gives a scenario in this first chapter about a girl from an inner city community who is reading a passage about sailboats. Was this in your oh, yes. version? Yes, and that, that reminds me of that, that when she heard the word sail, she thought about a mall and mm-hmm. she thought about sails at the mall. And when she heard about splashing water, it made her think about the fountain in the mall. Right. So at the end of this, you know, test that she was doing, this reading test, when she was asked to recall what she had read, even though she had read everything perfectly mm-hmm. i mean as far as you know being able to decode the words she didn't have the understanding because she didn't have the context for the understanding right so yeah it just all brings to mind especially in this day and age this is going to make me sound like old lady but you know our kids are not coming into us it doesn't matter what socioeconomic background mm-hmm. i'm going to say that i feel like our kids are coming to us with less and less musical background knowledge uh, as the years go on or yeah. let me reframe it this way very different musical background knowledge where they're we don't have as many students. I don't feel like taking private piano lessons as used to be back in the day when everybody did that. Mm-hmm. It seems like now they're getting more dance instruction or mm-hmm. maybe if they're having any sort of private thing, it might be like early childhood music or it might be like guitar. Right. You know? So I feel like as far as if we're thinking about things in the classical tradition of teaching music, our kids don't have as much familiarity with that style of music. Right. So, and I don't think there's, well, it depends on the community for sure but I think that I know in my 20 some years of teaching I'm seeing um, kids coming from families where being musical was something that didn't happen in the family exactly yeah right so being consumers of music probably you know has has happened but and I'm just speaking from you know my little patch right. of world um, that yeah students are less um, comfortable with yeah. being musical in it's general. True. Well, yeah, singing lullabies to your children. Right. I mean, Did I you feel see like, that article on yeah, Facebook? Yeah, these about, articles keep coming back. Said, millennials are not singing lullabies yes. to their kids. Yeah. 
And I think there's definitely, it's, you know, with this age of technology, it's easier just to press play. Yes. And, and I don't know about that article specifically. I guess yeah. it depends on, on where you look because I'm sure there's lots of people listening right now who oh, are like, yeah. hey. I sing to my kids. I sing yeah, to my kids. Totally. And it's important to remember as far as the singing to the kids go is that it doesn't matter well, it doesn't matter anyway as far as your in-tuneness. When you're singing to your children, they want to hear your voice yeah. because it's you. It's the connection. Not because of your vocal stylings. Right. Yeah. Right. But anyway, so back, back to, to chapter one. So, I mean, yes, she's definitely talking about multiculturalism and diversity, awesome. which is good. Um, she quoted a lot of um, this person, James Zoll. A biologist, um, and I found myself highlighting a lot of those quotes about his work and um, talking about how we experience through our senses, we integrate these experiences to what we already know, and then we make decisions and we act based on those That's so funny because decisions. I wanted to read one of something from him. Yeah, we'll I highlighted his book at the end. We'll see if you highlighted this one. Okay, that if we want to help people learn, we must help learners feel they are in control help learners see how the learning matters in their lives and expect to encounter emotions as part of the learning process and we must take it seriously when we do yes i highlighted that and i was going to say that right that. away yeah. and didn't that recall that taking it seriously that the quote by kodai about how we must take, yes. our, take our children seriously yes exactly. i mean it's just again it's like so many of these but yeah this i love this idea of help learners feel their control giving right. them more ownership and agency which she talks exactly about and in she does talk chapters. about that a lot so i kind of want to just read this book by this James Zoll and just about the brain and learning and you know it's not music specific I think it could be kind of interesting exactly yeah all right well let's move on to chapter two okay because this is where we're talking more about social constructivist constructivism um which I think really speaks a lot to what we do as music teachers because so much we do hits these ideas of what we're doing socially in the classroom and how teachers, you know, we don't want to have this, this lecture experience where teachers are standing up in front of the classroom and exactly. lecturing. Yes. And I think as music teachers, we naturally do not teach that way, maybe as much as other subject areas. I mm -hmm. could be going a little bit too far with by saying that, but you know, I think our, our discipline, especially elementary music teachers, I think our discipline lends to more of that, participatory experience and you know we don't have that sage on stage quite as much I don't feel no but it's still a good reminder <laughs> that we kind of need to get out of their way right. and we need to let the kids be doing more together solving problems on their own and that we as a teacher are more of their guide we're more of their tutor but or we're moving facilitator along. she yeah. talks a lot about that yeah we're moving alongside with them and um she keeps coming back to she many times comes back to this understanding of constructivist teaching mm -hmm. and she mentions piaget is credited with originally originating the viewpoint that learning is constructing understanding yeah um and then let's see but then she talks a lot about this russian psychologist and i'm sure i'm gonna murder the name vygotsky vygotsky yeah vygotsky um, and he speaks more to specifically the role of the teacher in all of that because Piaget didn't necessarily address what the teacher's doing during this time. And so this Vygotsky talks more about how the teacher is there to facilitate the learning. But again, 
allow the children to have their moment of working together. And he, he named the, the gap the the zone of proximal development. Yeah. You know, and that's that sweet spot that we find mm-hmm. as teachers where... Yes, I was going to read something yeah. exactly here. Can okay, I Okay, yeah, go right. ahead. And you, as you a learner, it. entering your own zone of proximal development means being willing to enter a place where you are working at a level that is just beyond your own competence and therefore needing support from others. And my own schema here came into play because I was thinking about how for years and years and years I've heard, and I'm sure lots of musicians have heard, when you play in a group or sing in a group or whatever, you want to be in a group with people who are better than you. Right. Right? So that that you are learning from them um, and that that's where you're going to get the most growth, right? Yeah. And I also thought about um, our friend Amy uh, who teaches level two, Amy mm-hmm. Abbott, likes to talk about how you want, when you're teaching your own students, she's great, Amy's great with the metaphors, um, you want them to be like in the pool and the water is just under the nose. Right. So, you know, we're not drowning. Yes. But we're not like head and shoulders above the water and looking around. Yeah, we're, we're just like feeling that moment just of we need to work. That, like <laughs> I've got to, you know, do whatever it takes to make sure I stay afloat. Yes. Yeah. So I thought about those things and how important that is. Because if you're not feeling challenged, right? Exactly. But of course, where it gets extremely difficult, and this goes for any subject matter, any age, is this idea of differentiation. Because she then goes on to say that teachers need to recognize that a classroom is full of learners all operating within their own zones of proximal Am I saying that right? Proximal development, which underscores the importance of designing learning environments with a variety of entry points that enable all learners to participate, even though they enter with a a range of levels of prior experience and expertise. So this idea that, I mean, yeah, we can uh, we can say that we we're designing our lesson in a way that's not too difficult, not too easy. But where is every single kid within that zone? Right. Because for many of them, it might be too easy. And for many of them, it might be too difficult. Now, is and this... so what are we doing as teachers to differentiate? I'm not sure where to find that compared to where... I'm looking on page 16, but I don't yeah, know no, about it's yours. Yeah, not the same. Um, I was just wondering, because when we're talking about experiences, and she was talking about misunderstanding yeah. where students are coming from. Right. Uh, did she give you the, in, the example, I don't know if it's in this chapter, of having a conversation about jazz in the classroom. Yes, yeah. And thinking she talks about it later, but that yeah, a student it relates to this. understands what's going on. And then later in listening to the recording of what happened in the classroom, she was like, oh, she uh, she has experiences with jazz dance. Right. And that's what she's... Where she's coming Where she's at. coming from, mm-hmm. which is much, much different than jazz music. Right. And so, no, she doesn't really understand, you know... It appeared as though she understood the conversation, but she was her brain was elsewhere. Like, right, right. And then, of course, this then leads to the idea of scaffolding, which yes. she talks a lot about, which is something that, again, it, it can be so overwhelming and challenging. I think especially for music teachers, elementary music teachers, if we're seeing three, 400, 500 plus students to be able to scaffold for all of our students and know where all of our students are at all the time, it's mm-hmm. a little bit daunting. Yeah. And we, you know, we could, there's definitely things that we can do and I'm hoping that she can, again, give more concrete yes. examples later on. Um, the idea of scaffolding is, 
it's so extremely important and it's one of those things that I'm amazed how long it took me in my career for me to really not just understand but like be able to do and I'm not a master at it right but it's something that I you know I am a lot more conscientious of now um and I really love the examples she gives I guess it's though further on um in chapter four about scaffolding and how students do it for each other. Well, as she well. talks about it right here in chapter two. That's what I was looking at. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, she she even says that part of providing scaffolding is helping learners develop metacognitive skills, um, where they understand how learners learn. Yeah, and then that in turn allows them to be models for each other. And then again, this is a ding 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 Kodai moment because mm-hmm. she said oftentimes uh, peers often provide better models for one another than a teacher can provide. And right. I think of that especially with singing we talk about how the best model for a child who's struggling to match pitch is another child who is matching pitch rather Mm -hmm. than a teacher or from an instrument because that that tone quality that timbre is going to be so much better for them right and also that social piece of my friends helping me sing is different than this adult helping me sing and that's someone who is closer to me and that's how i'm gonna yeah and again all knowledge is socially constructed yes yes in a social situation and what better than in a music classroom where you're making music together right it's just well, so and then she goes on, I know, and then she goes on to talk about how learning is a holistic process and talking about, you know, going from real life holistic problem solving experiences and then breaking it down into smaller pieces from there. Oh, yeah. And, you know, how we do this in music all the time if we're doing a singing game with our children and we're, we're looking at this whole piece of music, but then we're isolating or pulling or drawing attention to certain pieces. Yeah, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit more in detail about that because I had some moments reading these first four chapters, especially in chapters one and two, because I guess, I don't know, coming off the school year, I I think I'm feeling, um, I don't know, maybe like uh, uh, fragile about my when I look over the school year and reflect on, on how it went, I'm just pulling things in question like, oh, did I did I do this enough for right. this group? I and did you. I do this enough? So I'll admit that during especially the first two chapters, I kind of felt um, like, I don't know, uh, alarmed that, that maybe I'm not doing enough. That, that right. I should be doing more, and I think about my stage on the sage on the stage moments, and I, I we all have now. Them. But here's the thing with elementary music, and I'm not saying that that does that keeps me from doing it, but in, in an elementary music classroom, especially the younger ones, they let you know when you're going on too long. They do. If so, you pay attention, they definitely let you do. Yes, but um, I'm getting away from oh, what I yeah. wanted to talk about, like going holistically, right? Yes. So she mentions and I'm not sure which chapter it is, but that if you're taking like specific rhythmic or melodic exercises right. and you're not introducing it through a whole piece of music right. that is not helpful for the learner right. out, of con- out of context. And again, I was thinking Kodai yeah. uh, because one thing that I stress in Kodai Level 1 with pedagogy Mm -hmm. is that whenever there's new music that the students, they have to hear it many, many times before um, being invited to participate, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Four to seven, 
is, is yeah. like kind of the, the rule that I go by. And that rote teaching needs to happen with whole first. Yes. Right. And there's many different ways of teaching rote. I think that this idea of rote teaching, I, th I think a lot of people have a knee jerk negative reaction to it. Mm -hmm. But rote teaching is not just I sing it, you sing it, I sing it, you sing it. Yeah. Like there's lots of different ways to approach that in a musical way yeah. and in a way that they can put context to it to the rest you know, of their lives, the yes. students. But I just thought that was really interesting about, I, I think about, honestly, I think about TPT products mm -hmm. and how often we see just isolated melodies and rhythms and we yes. do the drill and kill. Yes. Which, um, you know, I it, it's, it's just worth thinking about and talking about. Um, I participated in a learning lab like the day after school got out. And we were looking at, quote, best practices in music education. Yeah. Right? So we were given this um, this chapter from I don't know what. Or it wasn't a chapter. It was an article. And it was elementary music teachers and band teachers, secondary band teachers, and choir, secondary choir teachers. And this is under the whole um, idea of learning targets and success criteria and, and this. Right? So we have a coach who's not a music person who's uh -huh. not a musician uh -huh. and she's guiding us through this along with our music curriculum coordinator right who definitely is a music teacher right right Thank and goodness. so um anyway <laughs> going through this this article talking about best practices i was really trying to figure out where in the world it came from because i was like who says who says these are best practices oh yeah um because some of it rubbed me the wrong way because uh -huh. some of it was very specific mm. um like there was something about uh Newly, um, newly learned musical material is best practiced 10 minutes after learned. It's like, what is this? Very strange prescription. Anyway, okay. In, in looking through this thing, the hints that I got is that it might be Gordon. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I don't know anything about Gordon. Yeah, I, I thought it was odd that to speak to that. Yeah, I thought it was odd that we music teachers were be, being given by non-music people an article saying, "Okay, and here you go, and here's best practices." That to me sounds like something you would hear in a secondary situation, like mm -hmm. like a instrumental, especially like, "Okay, here's the new piece of music. We're gonna." play through it so you get an idea of what it's going to sound like, sight read it, okay, now we're going to practice just this little snippet of it because it's fresh in your mind? I don't know. Well, and so that this is why I, I know I've meandered, but this is bringing me back full circle to one of the things that this article on, quote, best practices said is that lots and lots and lots and lots of repetition, uh -huh. which, you know, I don't argue against because I'm thinking about individual practicing and sitting at the piano. Yeah. And, you know coming up with different ways to drill something and practice it. Yeah. So that didn't, went during this this learning lab thing, that didn't throw me. But now that as I, as I read this and I'm thinking about, oh, yeah, it doesn't mean anything. I, I think really the bottom line is why should the students care? Right. When they walk in and they see your snippet of a rhythm, you know, on the smart board or PowerPoint or whatever, 
why do they care? Right. I don't know if we make connections enough to the whole. Yes, I agree. And this is something that I think it's taken me a while to come to, too. Like, as a young Kodai teacher, I would learn all these great, you know, flashcard games and all yes. these great games, you know, King of the Mountain and all these great things, which I love and I still play. But what I didn't do is I didn't make those intentional connections of how those games then related us to reading and writing and participating in the whole, whether it's, I mean, and the whole doesn't have to be a Beethoven symphony. The no, whole, no. Can, the whole be can be a folk an song. Eight exactly. A so something song. that I've tried to make sure that I'm, you know, always doing is connecting whatever that game is to the song we just sang or uh -huh. the song we're about to sing. Yeah. So we take, you know, a snippet of bow, wow, wow, me, Ray, do. And then we are now reading flashcards that use me, Ray, do, you know, because then we're relating it back to Bow Wow Wow. And what was that part of Bow Wow Wow? Oh yeah, Bow Wow Wow. Do you, Mi Re Do Bow Wow Wow to begin? No, no, no. The last, the last phrase of Bow oh. Wow Wow. Oh, sorry. sorry. I was no, imagining. I'm thrown because I'm like, <laughs> I'm thinking at the beginning of the song. No, the last. The Tommy Tucker's dog. Bow Wow Wow. Sorry. I'm there now. Sorry. The point being <laughs> that I think as long, I, there, there's a time and a place for these, these games and these exercises. Right. I don't think it's saying that we have to completely do away from them. But no, I notice I don't bring it back enough. Exactly. Because I do have moments in my classroom where I realize because of something a student has said, I can't give any specific examples, that they haven't connected the idea of this me Ray Doe and that song. Yeah. Like I have not, for some of them, I have not connected it enough. Yeah. Oh, and yeah, I'm not saying I'm perfect at that either. Yeah. But, but I think that's something. So anyway, that was something on. that hasn't really been on my radar, but reading this, I was like, Oh, wow. I got to really be yeah. intentional. Yeah. And that's where those beautiful transitions come in then in your lesson, well, you yes. know, because then you transition, you know, those those games and, you know, these TPT products. I mean, they're great and they have a great place as long as they are within the context of the whole of the quote unquote real music, you know. Right. Yeah. But do we make those connections? Yes. We and to. I'm sorry, I think it's worth saying most of the time your TPT products are not going to make those connections for you. Well, that is the problem. And that, that is a that is a problem. Yeah. If yeah. you're doing flashcards and you're doing these types of games, you should be using patterns and snippets from from actual songs that the kids are familiar with. Well, yeah. Not just bizarro patterns that you would never see in real life just for the sake of saying I can read this pattern. Yeah. No, when I make flashcards or any kind of thing, I take it from songs. Exactly. And I don't do like, oh, here's a super hard one just for the sake of it being super hard. Yeah. And that's where the vetting process comes in. Well, and knowing and see, your your sellers and creators, yes. if especially if you're someone who's coming at it from this this mindset of you want these patterns to be from known songs and materials, then I would say make sure you're buying products from people that you know are Kodai certified or ORF certified because then you know that they're coming from from actual pieces of music. Yeah. And I and that and this is a side whatever issue. I just think it's we're so flooded right now, um, lately with yeah. with TPT sellers from yeah. all walks of life that hey. we don't, you know, you don't really know if that person is is Making yeah. products that are going to be as helpful. Exactly. Yeah. Just but do anyway. your homework. Just do your homework. That's true. And we're not saying TPT is bad. Oh, Tanya no. has stuff on TPT. I do. A lot of our friends have stuff on TPT, and there's a lot of great stuff out there. There is. There's you some just great stuff. It. But be thoughtful. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, moving on. Moving so, on. Oh, student-student interaction. Can we talk about this real yes, quick? Please. About the role 
the roles of the learner. Yeah, I feel like you, you've jumped ahead, though, because you're in oh, chapter four. Oh, I'm sorry. Can we keep I just talking about chapter two? Can we go back and talk? <laughs> we were talking about scaffolding, and then we were talking about the holistic nature of the learning process. Yes. Oh, and then, oh, constructivist views of sequential learning. Again, yes. this is where I went, Kodai. Yeah, Kodai, in, in mine, Kodai. I think it's called learning is, is experiential, not necessarily sequential. Oh. So one thing that I highlight is, is what it said, um, while a developmentalist may work from a vision of what a typical learner of a certain age should be learning, work from a, uh, a social constructivist vision of learning suggests that what is to be learned and how it should be learned is directly related to the learner's prior experience with and knowledge of the idea or activity. I think I read that wrong. But the point is that I think, and again, this speaks to, I think, our experiences in modern day education. We don't necessarily have to be saying, all right, these are my second graders, and therefore this is exactly what they should be doing in week two of November. They should be doing this activity because my pacing guide says so. Mm -hmm. And that's not necessarily what research is telling us kids should and shouldn't be doing. Right. Yeah. And you've got the power of the research to back you up. If you have administrators or whoever that's saying, no, you need to be doing this at this exact time, you can say, hey, look at this book I just read. Do you know anybody who is under that kind of... I personally don't. Well, I'm, I'm going to say classroom teachers, I think, more so than us. Most definitely. Yeah. I, just... I don't know a lot of music teachers who necessarily are stuck in that. Maybe if you are sharing a school environment with another teacher where you have to be more on top of those okay. kind of things. I could see that. Um, and again, I think that you need to be wary of anyone who tries to sell you a bill of goods like, here's all your lessons for, you know, kindergarten. Here's right. all your lessons for fourth grade. Yeah. Because... You, you should be tweet if you're gonna do that if you're gonna buy someone's package of lessons or even you know something published yeah you really need to make sure that you're tweaking things to fit your students your learners yes. and where they're at um i wanted to read another thing uh in a well-designed learning experience students should be able to participate from a wide variety of entry points along a continuum of competence. Yes. So that, see, okay, when I was reading this part, I kind of freaked out a little bit because she hammers away at, all right, all these students are coming to you with different experiences, different competencies. Yeah. And you're going to give them the same musical experiences and they all need to be successful. Yes. Um, anyway, it just was a little heavy. Uh, I agree. Um, and then... Yeah, so that was a, but then she goes on, and because when, when I read that, I thought, okay, well, tell me then exactly what you're thinking of. Right, well, and then she says, you know, she goes on to say that they should be fully aware of their own expertise and where it lies in that that continuum, which brings back the idea of students creating their own learning goals, uh -huh. which I have to say, I'm... I'm starting to get better at, especially with older students, mm -hmm. and I think about something very specific like recorder, you know, like if you do recorder karate, mm -hmm. you know, like I say to my kids every single day, I don't expect every single one of you to get your black belt. If mm -hmm. you did, that would be amazing, but I don't expect that and neither should you. Mm -hmm. I would like each of you, especially after we've been doing it kind of for a while and they know what the songs are that I'm giving them for their yeah. belts, I'd like each of you to create your own goal, you know. By the end of the year, I really just want to get that blue. If I get that blue, about I feel like I've made a lot of progress you know and I don't necessarily go so far as to have them write it down or share that with me in any way mm -hmm. but that's kind of like the small little snippets I've been doing but it's such a small little thing and I feel like yeah. there's so no, much more great. to be done what would it look like 
if you did have them be a little more formal about that goal. I certainly could. I mean, especially yeah. if we've got kids coming in with one-to-one Chromebooks or whatever. I was going to say, with technology. Like, yeah. do a Google form yeah. and they, they put this down their goal for themselves. This is what my goal is. And I mean, at the end of the year on our last day of recorder, I said, okay, do you remember that day where I asked you to mentally pick a goal and decide for yourself what you wanted? You know, how many of you met that goal? Well, right. you know. And now, how many of them will remember, too? Is that was the problem. So, yeah, I mean, I'm reflecting on that for myself as well, like would it really be that much harder to write it down? And yeah. then, yeah, where can we apply that with things other than just recorder? I mean, kids can make goals for themselves in a lot of things. Right. I certainly have goals for them, but do they have goals for themselves? Yeah, not unless you ask them to. Exactly. Yeah. So, anyways, well, and then that slides right into the next section where she talks about learner agency, which is so huge. And I think... Did you have the chocolate chip cookie vignette? No, in yours? I think that's not in mine. In um, chapter two, where she talks about oh, making chocolate I'm chip cookies. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, yes. Okay. Yes. Where she talks about Where with her kids making chocolate chip cookies, and when they were very young, then they got to do the dumping yes. in of the chocolate chips. I'm sorry. I missed and it. And then, yes. like, after a few more times, then they get to crack the eggs. Yes. And it's this whole idea of... You know, being a facilitator. And... Well, and the whole time to the child, they were baking cookies. Right. Whether it was they were just dumping in chocolate chips or doing everything from beginning to end. No, but they end. had the ownership of, they, I helped bake these cookies. Not even I helped. I baked cookies. Yes, I mean, right. I think that was the one of the most important, you know, aha moments she had when her daughter told her that. And, yeah, making sure that the kids feel like this is their musical experience. This is their music classroom. Right. And I, there are ways that I feel like... I could be much better about that. And I, th- I I will say that I think Kodai teachers especially because we we do so much of, you know, when I think about a traditional, what a traditional Kodai lesson looks like with singing games and then, yeah, maybe there's some practice experience using manipulatives, but uh-huh. it's so much teacher-led. And yes, I want to give my but students more it opportunity. Doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be. And the whole idea, especially when you're talking about the play. Yeah. Part, which she doesn't mention, and maybe that will come up, but yeah. the idea of music as play. Right. When in our classrooms, in a Kodai classroom, when we set those up, we're, we're setting it up and we're facilitating it. Yeah. So one of the biggest mistakes I think some elementary music teachers make is being there, singing along, yes. being a participant. I mean... Sure, if you're playing a, something where you need partners and you have an odd number, then, of course, you're going to step in and you're going to be so, somebody's partner. Right. But most of the time, as soon as they've got the game, they've got the song, you're stepping out and you're you're letting the play happen with just them. Right. Um, I, yeah, and I think that part, if I'm talking about my personal experience, I'm I'm okay with. It's... The musical choice part Mm -hmm. is where I think that I get a little bit hung up. So here's the quote that I'm specifically, when I I had my aha moment of reading going, do I do enough of this? says, the real red flag, quote unquote red flag, is when learners spend more time doing what the teacher directs them to do than they do interacting directly with music through engaging in musical thinking. I don't have that. I'm sure I would have highlighted that. I do not have that. I mean, this this is the moment where I go, how much 
yeah, they're playing the singing game and they're doing it independently of me. Uh-huh. But I told them to play that singing game. I taught them that singing well, game. Well, okay, but let's be practical. What <laughs> I would know. be the alternative? Well, that's my point. Okay, so the singing games, I'm not necessarily saying that there has to be a lot of student choice, although there can be. You can definitely on... say, do you want to play Bow well, Wow Wow and... or do you want to play? But even within the game, you know, choosing partners and choosing motions, yes. I get that. But I'm talking more about, like, giving them more musical choice in... I mean, I honestly will say that I feel like maybe ORF, you know, ORF-inspired teachers have a little bit of a leg up in this kind of thing. When we think about the amount of improvisation that's going on at the bard instruments and things like that, I don't feel like I give my students enough of those experiences. And I want to give them more. Yeah. So that's my reflection. All right. I understand about that. I totally totally understand Yeah, making more of the musical decisions of actually what music they are singing and playing. Within the framework that I'm providing them, of definitely, course. and it's that not will just a free for all. Give them more agency for sure. Yeah. Um, then we got to make sure we mention in chapter two that this all comes down to we must give students musical problems to solve. Yes. In a group setting, right, or or individual setting. Um, in order for them to learn. And this is something that I struggled with. So last year, right before the school year, I took a course um, through the district in problem-based learning. Uh-huh. And I will admit that when I first heard, oh, we're going to do PBL, I thought it was project-based learning. And I thought, oh, that's surely something I can apply to it the music room. It wasn't because PBL is also is project-based learning. PBL is project-based learning, but it also can be problem-based learning, oh. which really takes it a step farther when it comes to the difference being that the problem really should be something that is real life, real world, outside the music class. So a lot of the examples they were giving were like environmental things, political things, social things. And so when we were tasked at the end of this course to start coming up with our own PBL as in problem-based learning Mm -hmm. project, I had a hard time being like, well, what's the problem? <laughs> you know, in music class, what is what is truly if we're if we're really digging that deep, what is the problem other than I want to learn how to sing and read this song and I need to know how to do that? Well, I mean, having just listened to Aileen's latest podcast, yes. and she was talking about project based learning, yes, and she was talking about something she did, I think, with third graders where she had them make a film score right to a Mickey Mouse. Um, silent film. Right. So I just I, I still struggle with that word exactly. problem because again, I mean, like, what's the problem? Yeah. Well, if the, the problem, problem is, is there's no music, music in this film. Exactly. Okay? I feel like it's always going to be a little bit because music by nature has so much to do with entertainment and right. joy well, and, and all and then, this stuff, and that's great. I think that really does point to a lot of composition and yes. improvisation. Yes. Okay. The problem Agreed. is we have a parade for so and so in thirty minutes and. We're supposed to do the processional music. Right. Right? Something like How that. How do we come up with something? Well, and honestly, one of the projects I had thought about doing, and I didn't do it this last year, but now that I'm saying it out loud on this podcast, maybe I'm forcing myself to do it next year, is maybe. I've had a couple of teachers say to me, we don't have a school song. We should have a school song. Can Ooh, you write a school song? That is a problem. <laughs> well, that is a problem. And what if that became a PBL you know, a real true PBL problem-based learning experience for maybe my sixth graders is exactly. kind of their parting gift to the school next year as they write a school song. Exactly. Using the knowledge that I've taught them about chord structure and songwriting. Yep. And so, yeah, now that I've said it out loud, <laughs> I have to do it. Our but... school song was written by sixth graders back in 1988. Well, I think it was 
School opened in 1988, but I think it was like maybe two years after that. And it was written by sixth graders at the school. Yeah. And I teach this song school-wide every year to everybody. And um, and it was written by kids, which is why I'm not touching it. But right. I tell you, it's a little cringy. Is it? Well, the lyrics. Sure. And know. I mean, I think that's that's the point, is that it's it's, it's not going not to be me, from me. Yeah. It's, it's the yeah. students that wrote this. That's so okay. I'm not touching it. Yeah. But... I understand what you're saying with the whole, what's yeah, the Yeah, I think, yeah, well, I'll be later curious on, as we move on into these chapters what some examples of quote-unquote problems I think it's a, a, quote, big, unquote, a broader definition of problem. I agree. Because I agree. later on she talks about a class trying to figure out the form of a piece. Or chords to a melody. And that's the problem. Yeah. Is that... Okay, is this really a B section or is this yeah. just a repeated A section? I just I struggle with the word problem because it has a negative connotation. Maybe mm-hmm. I, I would think of it. I, I maybe would prefer in my own classroom to like call it a puzzle or a or a, you know, something to figure out. Can you say fun problem? Fun problem. I have a fun problem. <laughs> I have I a fun know. problem for you. Yeah. Anyways, that's a persnickety. Well, I mean, it's, it's just vocabulary. I don't I see know. that being a big thing. Um, okay. All right. Let's move on to chapter three. So oh, now this boy. is really... Oh, I'm sorry. Did you have something else to say about no, chapter no, two? No, no, no. I just was looking at chapter three and how <laughs> I got all tied up about... This whole okay again. Oh, I dimensions wrote, of dimensions music. Dimensions of music yeah. versus elements of music. I really liked this because I this speaks to I think what we say so happens so often in class where you say to a kid, okay, what rhythm are you noticing? And they're like, so's and me's. And I was like, no, what rhythm are you noticing? Like the idea that ever all of these quote unquote elements that we talk about in music are so intrinsically tied together that mm-hmm. the students have a hard time even isolating it so well can i read a quote that, yeah please that speak do. to that we can say that music is experienced as a multi-dimensional structured whole and what is commonly known as the elements of music could be considered dimensions of that whole yes which yeah. makes so much more sense yes i love that um, and i mean she goes on to say throughout this chapter and I, i'm assuming throughout the book that it's not to say that you don't isolate or highlight a certain dimension you mm-hmm. know i mean that's what we do we, we draw attention to it she talks about it being a point of entry right into exactly. a song which i really like and back to what you were talking about terminology right and and she mentions this several times and i think i highlighted it every single time because this is huge and it's very much in the Kodai philosophy realm as well but she says it almost does not matter whether learners ever master the terminology we use to label the concepts knowing the name of the concept is really only a matter of convenience and expedience knowing the names name does not automatically carry with it an understanding of the concept to know how to act as musicians Learners need to understand musical concepts. Now, I put a little heart next to that quote in my book. Do oh, you see that? That's yeah. how much I love Preach, because yeah. this is an idea that, um, especially as a younger teacher, that I it, I didn't get. Yeah. Because they I must thought, know what quarter notes are. Right. I taught them, and this is very Kodai. Like, yes. I taught them the name for quarter notes. Surely they know what a quarter note is because they have that name right. well you could make up a word it means nothing and point to something and and make everyone memorize it in the room but it doesn't mean they know anything and i also remember and this was a while ago reading i think it was on facebook and i mean but still many years ago so 
Yeah. I don't think that person's listening right now. Uh, but someone had said something about my kindergartners um, know the lines and spaces of bass clef. Right. Because we practiced it and they know it. And I oh, can go to anything sake. on the bass clef and they can name it. And I'm like, well, so what? Yeah, they can't sing it, Who nor should they. It doesn't have any relationship yeah. to their musical understanding right. or their Unless skills. they're applying it. Like my daughter Unless in piano lessons it. is learning. She's starting to incorporate left hand and learning her bass clef pitches. Right. And I'm okay with that because she's directly implying yes, it to Yes, you have to apply it. it. And this is yeah. one of those things that, um, you know, I think some people, maybe, I don't know who, some people might be critical of, Oh wow, they're in third grade and they don't know the lines and spaces yet. Right. Like, nope, not till we're on recorder because right. before that, when we're doing any kind of melodic learning, I want them to understand the relationship and the melodic contour more than I want them to be able to point and say there's a B. Exactly. So anyway, yeah, I very, agree. Very she mentions product. that a lot and talks about, you know, these ideas of I like this quote. Since the concept of music is so abstract, to teach it, we need to make its qualities more accessible and evident to learners. Exactly. And that's what we do, I think, as Kodai teachers. We give them just what they need, and we give it to them in a playful, child-friendly, developmental way. Yep. Through rhythm syllables, through movable dosophage, through movement activities, we're, we're teaching them just as well, if not better, well, definitely better, in my opinion, than every good boy does fine in FAC. Yeah, there's not a value to that. No, there is later when there, they apply yeah, it, it specifically apply. to, you know, playing it on an instrument and singing in that way. But they have to, like you said, they have to understand their relationships first. That's huge. Right. So, yeah, this whole idea of the dimension thing, it, it affirmed about, what I've, yes. I've noticed as a teacher, but it just gave me So specifically the in the book, when we're talking about elements or dimensions of music, she's just saying, instead of saying, here are the elements of music, pitch, rhythm, form let's call them dimensions yeah yeah just to be clear but then we go into where is it where is it the meta dimensions oh yeah yeah and this is where i started to feel that little bit of maybe that guilt trippy thing because is, i yes, think i live way too much in the dimensions of music the you know the melody the rhythm yes so let me read this just to make sure everyone's on board with what meta dimensions yeah, are thank you all right uh, style and genre are musical concepts, clearly dimensions of musical experience, and and then they're included in this other picture because they are not, wait, because they are not constituent elements uh, or dimensions. So they're not their own elements or dimensions. Perhaps we should call them meta dimensions of music, music since they are products of combination and interaction of other dimensions. Yeah. So these are kind of like the big... Oh, effective I'm qualities such as mood, yes. tension, release, climax, um, unity, variety could be considered meta-dimensions as could architecture. And I was like, oh, right. architecture. Now, when I read this, I don't know about you, but I really thought a lot about world music pedagogy that we read yes, last summer. Yes, Because that seems to be coming from that entry point mm -hmm. seems to be very much within the meta dimensions of music yeah yeah these aren't necessarily the things that you can see or read in musical notations these are maybe more of the big ideas that relate to um well she talks about time and space balance and ensemble so these are the things that happen within the social piece i think of right. making music a lot and i wrote a little thing in the margins about 
middle school. These broader, yes. these broader meta dimensions of music may provide better points of entry for some music teaching, especially for learners with more experience and expertise. Yes. So, yeah. So I think you know this is good to say right now for our listeners right now. If you're a secondary instrumental or choral or even general music teacher, you know this book isn't just for elementary teachers. No, this no. is for anybody. We're coming at it mostly from the elementary lens because yeah, that's where we live and work currently. But um, yeah, there's a lot of ways to think about this. And like I like that you said entry point, you know, how we can bring some of this information to our older learners. And I think that's it, is some of these bigger overarching Right. And I'm concepts. going to read another one right here because I, I labeled it World Music Pedagogy. Yeah. Um, what I am suggesting is that the teacher consider the musical context and choose a particular dimension or meta dimension as a starting point, a point of entry or doorway in. Mm-hmm. And through this portal invite learners to engage with the music yeah i love this idea of doorway and and entryway and because this is again does I she think, capitalize doorway in all she the does time? and i, I was like wow well, it's okay. great but no i think you know that's that's your way of introducing a new piece is to give them you know a little bit of something they know but then explore something that might be new especially for older ones like she said who have more experience because i can't see seventh graders walking in the room and seeing you know some eight beat fragments of a rhythm and getting really excited about it exactly but i can see them getting excited about hearing um you know a mariachi band recording Mm mm-hmm Totally. And then she goes on to talk about really what we know as active music making, that how are we going to now construct this? How are we actually, she really goes into the business of how are we going to do this with kids? We're yes. not going to sit up and lecture about it. Yes. We're going to. Thankfully, because I yes. was ready. I was like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> We're so going to learn about, conceptualize, understand music through, and she breaks it down to performing, listening, creating. Yep. And it's like, boom, you know, I mean, of course, that's like the dumb moment, but really that's what we need to make sure that our students are doing. Exactly. They're not listening to a lecture. Yep. They are actually actively, and listening is active music making as well. Yes. Listening and Listening responding. to the music. Yeah. Yeah. Not that's what you. I mean. <laughs> no, not to me because I can babble for a long No, not time. to any of us. Yeah. So I just appreciate that she broke that down again. Um, and this is where she really started to get into a little bit more, um, of like specific examples. Oh, did you get, I got a little giggly when she said, it is not enough to just talk about music with students yes. or about how many children Bach had in order for oh. musical understanding to grow. An individual must interact directly with music, either through performing, listening, or creating, or some combination of the three processes. I don't remember the little bit about Bach. That's funny. You didn't have that? I don't know if I had that, but I do remember that quote in general. That's funny. Yeah. But it's true. I mean, when I think about my own elementary music experience, I did not like. Well, I did for a while. I had a really amazing elementary music teacher, which I now know had some orphan Kodai training. Uh But she left after my third grade year. And this person who came in after her, um, well, first of all, it was on a cart. They lost the music room, which is unfortunate. But all I remember is composer of the month. Um, That's all we did. Yeah. And I mean, I didn't like music as an elementary music student. For a long time, because that's all it was. Yeah. And I mean, it's not to say that listening to me, I mean, I just said it, and listening and responding to yeah. music is active music making. Well, a classroom teacher but could that do music can't, appreciation. That's right, not that music appreciation. It should be music. Um, all right. Well, just seeing what time it is, let's talk about chapter four. <laughs> okay. Oh, wait, wait. Else. Can, I, oh, can I do one yes, more? I'm sorry. Yes. There's just one more thing. Yes. I'm sorry. 
Kodai shout out again um, in chapter three, where she talks about the music that you use. Music teachers need to use quality music literature in yes. their teaching rather than musical exercises contrived to teach particular techniques or skills. Yes. I totally highlighted that mm -hmm. as well. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Getting away from just exercises I I would and like, real yeah. quality. I want to tattoo that somewhere. Right. I don't know. And then I do appreciate at the end of this chapter, I felt like, did she do this just for me? She just really did like a whole nice long breakdown step by step of what teaching for musical understanding Oh, means, no. Yeah, that was great. Where she kind of summarized everything that was she good. had talked I was like, about so far. Oh, thanks. Because, yeah. You, yeah. So if you just need a reminder, look at the end of chapter three because yeah. she's got a good little step-by-step -step process. Have, yes. Okay. Yay. So then chapter four, which in my uh, version is called Learning Music Through Sociocultural Constructive Process. This is where we start to really talk a lot about the teacher role. See, in my chapter four, it says context from learning music. Right. So You're I much think more verbose in yours. Upon, yes. Upon glance, I think the the most of the content is the same she's talking about what scaffolding could look like which is good because we talked about that earlier that's something that i think um we can do more of i yes. mean i speak for myself when i say that yeah um giving students more scaffolding as needed um and then she starts talking about having a supportive learning environment, how important that is. Checked about uh, open-ended and higher level thinking questions. Was that have, not in yours? No, I don't have, oh, uh, oh, oh no, no, I do. I'm okay. Sorry. I do have, I do have that. It's touched upon, but it's not, mu much of chapter four, the beginning yeah. is talking about teacher as facilitator, cheerleader, right. coach. Yes. Um, but yeah, she does talk about the higher level thinking, which again, made me think about, um, you know, your essential questions. Yes. Um, and what else did I highlight that I wanted to make sure I said? Okay, now I can't find what I was about to say. Oh, I like this. It was talking about when you do have students working in small groups or even independently, mm -hmm. um, it's important to kind of let them have that little bit of struggle oh, moment yeah, yeah. and not jump in and rescue them too quickly. I've definitely been guilty of that. I, I Yeah, I, I highlighted that. She said... <laughs> As far as jumping in and going from group to group. Not such, hovering. Such, yeah, such actions on the part of the teacher can extremely disrupt the learner's thinking processes. Yeah. Yeah. And this is where then she gives lots of, what, what would the word be? Would it be a vignette? Yeah, a vignette. Yeah. Where she word for word writes down the conversation going on between the students and, and the Some teacher. Some of these, well, there was one in particular conversation that I had to read twice because, and, and I think that really speaks to kids being able to understand each other quicker yeah, than us adults. Because when I was them. reading this between the two kids, I was like, what? What? How did he get that from what right. you just said? But he did, so yes. good. And just the, the questioning techniques that the teachers use in these examples is, is that, you know, they're, they're leading the students to the answer, but in a very gentle way, in a very constructivist way, right. where the students are really constructing their own meeting. Um, and but they're validating was... the, the student's answers, even if that wasn't necessarily the answer that she was looking for. Or yes. he, I don't know if it's a male or female teacher, I shouldn't assume. The teacher doesn't necessarily get the answer that I think they were thinking of originally, mm -hmm. but they validate what the students were saying. Right. Which leads to that positive learning environment, which I think can be hard. Yeah, most <laughs> And time-consuming, but important. 
yeah, I even highlighted that there. A teacher needs to let learners know he feels what they have to say is valuable. Right. And then that vignette with the class trying to figure out the form of a piece and the second A section was in canon and the orchestration was slightly different. Right. And I was amazed as I read through that, I went, okay, there's the point where I would have just given them the answer exactly. because this was going on. It's going on too and long. It's like, and, and what she says is the students listen to it several more times and then come to the right. answer. And I went, well, <laughs> what if class is over? I know. What if, what if, what if? And I was thinking that is a lot of patience because I would get to a point where I'd be like, I'm just going to tell you now. It's a canon. <laughs> it's a canon. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> but, it, but yeah, I agree. I had moments when I was reading some of those. But I was two like, well, I that's went, good. That as a teacher, I don't know that I would be as good as, as this teacher about those things. But I guess that's why we're reading this book. Yeah, so we can get go. better ideas. And then, of course, she did talk more about learner roles and that peer to peer um, learning talk, which brings back the point, which you've talked about in this podcast multiple times giving students more of their student talk opportunities, like yes. the turn and talk, yes. all partners. I always feel like I can do more of that. I well, you know, that's something we all can do point, more of. And I know I highlighted it, but I can't find it right now. But there's a point in here where she says every single lesson, every single, like whether it's whole group instruction or small group or whatever, there should always be opportunities for kids to talk to each other. Yeah. Because they're going to do it anyway. And they need each other. They need that peer help. I do also appreciate, this is, I felt like, again, she was speaking directly to me that talked about how sometimes as a teacher, when you hear their chatter, right. you assume that it's, you know, off task. And it's, I highlighted, talk among learners is more productive than teachers perceive it to be. This exactly. is based on yes. her own, like, field recordings in the classroom. And this is something that I, I definitely squash chatter very quickly in my classroom. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if I really was reflecting on what their chatter was about, maybe it was was really truly about the music and I didn't realize it was yeah. and giving them opportunity to have the chatter even yes. more than I am now yeah and and but that that that's a fine line because honestly sometimes it's not about what's going on in the room exactly you know yeah. but but yeah you definitely have to be sensitive to yeah. that and then again, after a few more examples and vignettes, she gives a nice, you know, summary of everything that we've learned in chapters one through four. Which was good, because it was dense. Just, it's very dense, and I'm very much appreciative Can of I it. sum it up with this quote I highlighted? Please Maybe do. Maybe you hi highlighted the same. Thinking of learning as problem solving enables the teacher to conceptualize teaching in terms of what the learner will learn rather than in terms of what the teacher will teach. Boom. That is so, yeah, that's, I think that's that this book. We're done. Up. That's it. Yeah. Yep. But I think both of you and I have come to the conclusion that, you know, we're, we're anxious and excited to dig into more practical examples yes, of what I'm this actually looks like really in real life. Fascinating. And I think it's practical. coming. our coda section where yes. we each recommend something uh personal or professional although it's probably going to be personal because it's summer but it will not. we've done our i consider the whole yeah, we recommend this, this book we recommend teaching for musical <laughs> understanding by jackie wiggins yes. third edition third edition yeah we that would be our professional recommendation yeah. because we're doing it this is true uh -huh. so let's just stick with that 
So then what's your what's your fun not the, this book isn't fun. What's your personal recommendation? Okay, my personal recommendation. Um well me and my family just took a road trip. We drove yep. to California and we drove back and it's like it's a solid like sixteen hours in the car each way. Right. Um so my daughter, we've been bringing her she's nine, we've been bringing her through the Harry Potter books. Yeah. And I, I'm going to recommend something that everybody's probably already done already. You really have to listen to Jim Dale, read them in audiobook form because it's a good reminder, she though. is, she, we've got them all on audiobook and we've listened to most of them on audiobook. And then, so now that we're at the seventh one, I've, I'm to the point with like reading to her. Um, if Jim Dale's recorded it, let's not bother with me because. You know, she's nine. She's heard my voice. Yeah. I sang to her when she she knows who I am. <laughs> and a break from mom. We're we're bonded. So <laughs> like Jim Dale is just fantastic. Aww. So we listened to all of I'm I'm saying we hit the highway, we pressed play chapter one for um the seventh Harry Potter book. Wow. And we finished the seventh one in Arizona. That's so we awesome. still had to go through all of Utah. With nothing to do. Oh, well, then we listened to music because oh, well, my son was too. like, how about music? I was like, I oh, like yeah. music. Let's do that. Music's <laughs> um, <looks> okay. <laughs> so I would say my, my big recommendation would be Harry Potter, um, any Audio. of them, audiobooks, because yeah. Jim Dale, he's just absolutely amazing in what he can do with his voice. Yeah. Yeah, and as far as music, if you're driving through Arizona or Utah, uh, U2's The Joshua Tree is just a perfect like soundtrack for that kind of landscape oh yeah yeah it's it's awesome okay cool. all right so there you go what the about devil. you what have you been well um, enjoying? i have been reading for pleasure in addition to teaching for musical understanding yeah um i am reading what alice forgot by leanne moriarty i, I think, think it is how you pronounce yeah. it and i've read other books by her and this, this is the one... only book i've read by her oh really yeah. i've read some of the others i can't think of them off the top of my head because it's you know summer brain but this one just was literally on the shelf of the library and i thought okay let me try that and i'm really enjoying it i feel like i've done this before where i recommend something before i finished it that could be a bad thing but i've thing. read it and it's really good yeah tanya affirms that i'm gonna like it so it's just it's a good light summer read it, it it's um, a little it kind of remind the reason i think i liked it is that it's kind of time travel it is and a lot of but her not really books i think are like that if i remember correctly but um I personally am relating to it very much, not, not necessarily what's happening to the character, <laughs> just the fact that she's 39 years old, she's about to be 40, that's how old I am, ah. and she's kind of, you know, I don't want to give away what's going on in the book too much, but a lot of it just has to do with, so far, reflecting on her own life and where she's mm -hmm. at in life and the choices she's made, and um, yeah, it's just, you know, being a mom, and yes. at that age, I yes. feel like I, I'm relating personally to what she's talking about. And it's set in Australia. It is, so there's a few things. And if you listen to that audio Oh, I'm, is it with it's, an Australian of course, accent? Of yeah, course, yeah, it's it's great. There's some some words here and there that make me giggle because they're obviously you know vocab that is not a part of our yeah. American lexicon. But that's okay. It's it's a good book, and if it's you're just fun. looking for a light summer read, I'm enjoying it. Awesome.
We've reached the double bar line. Thank you for listening to Music Teacher Coffee Talk. Show notes can be found at Teaching Music, Tanya, Tanya's Kodai Aspiring Blog. Connect with us on Facebook or Instagram. Just look for Music Teacher Coffee Talk. If you enjoyed this show, please consider subscribing, rating, and leaving us a review on iTunes to help others find this podcast. In our next episode, we will be talking about chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Teaching for Musical Understanding by Jackie Wiggins, the third edition. Yes. So until next time, this is Carrie. And this is Tanya, wishing you happy musicking. <laughs>